You are listening to the EdTech Takeout from Grantwood AEA, an educational service agency that supports school districts in eastern Iowa with a focus on equity, excellence, and efficiency in education for all children. Welcome to episode 23 of the EdTech Takeout, the podcast that serves up bite-sized technology tips for teachers. My name is Jonathan Wiley, and I am joined once more by my colleague and co-host, the amazing Mindy Carney. Hey, back at it. How are you, Mindy? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, good. So Mindy and I were just sat around the office today with nothing to do, and uh, she <laughs> leaned over to me and said, hey, why don't we record a podcast this afternoon? And I said, sure, that'll be awesome. Oh, is that how that went today? Yeah, uh, things oh. are busy, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> a little busy today. We're like squeezing this in at the last hour of the day, getting her done. Yes, things are so busy right now that uh, we're yeah. recording the episode because we had it on our calendars to record, but i tell you what I don't have in my calendar, and that is uh, any time to edit the podcast and put it all together, oh. so uh, mm. let's hope that gets done soon. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. All right, so we have some follow-up news, right, from um, episodes past, and um, this was actually your prediction, I think, or... or um, something that you had seen come across somewhere that there was going to be a new iPad coming out and that announcement just came out and we're super excited about it. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Sure, yeah. Well, I would love to say it was just my prediction and nobody else <laughs> thought that there was new iPads possibly on the way, right. but uh, <laughs> yes, there was a new iPad announced and it was kind of um, good news for schools because I think it was... This is almost like the education edition. I've seen it referred right. to in a couple of places. It's uh, a replacement for the iPad Air 2, mm -hmm. and it's just called iPad. iPad. Yes. <laughs> so it's just called iPad. Um, it comes with uh, the price tag of $329 in the retail right. stores, but right. schools are able to um, buy this for $299, which is kind of an interesting thing. It's the cheapest full-size iPad we've ever seen. Right. It's not the newest, most updated version of an iPad, right? Yeah, uh, the processor yeah. is faster than the iPad Air 2. But oh, it is, okay. But slower than the iPad Pro. So yeah. it's somewhere in between. It's yeah, a, sure. It's a reasonably entry-level device, yeah. but it's it's good because it's yeah. an improvement over the existing iPad, so it should be yeah. a little bit faster. And uh, that, uh, that price certainly makes it competitive in the Chromebook yeah. market. Where, oh, my gosh. You know, you're looking at Chromebooks around that kind of price. I know it doesn't come with right. a keyboard or anything like that, but right. um, Apple have to try and compete with... Um, Google for classroom devices. Well, yeah, you know, we've seen so many school districts going to Chromebooks, and understandably, right, when you put um, the price points up against one another, I mean, Chromebooks seems like, you know, you're getting the best deal for your money. Um, but I feel like, especially those schools that have been using iPads previously, um, before uh, their Chromebook purchase, they're really missing some of those video editing features um, and just some of the other things that that iPad offers that Chromebook just, you know, is still trying to catch up with. And um, I think this might maybe bring iPads back into those schools, probably not in a one-to-one -one situation, but definitely maybe um, getting a couple iPads into classrooms again. So then students have the option to kind of, you know, hop back and forth between devices, which is actually, you know, the ideal world for sure. Yeah, I think if nothing else, it's going to make you think twice about what the next device might be for, for the classroom. Um, if you are looking at it and maybe some people are thinking, well, Chromebooks are really all we can afford. And now maybe there's something else you can afford and you've at least got something to weigh the pros and cons up against each other. And uh, everybody loves competition because competition gives more options and more features right. and more variety. So, um, yeah, we'll see where this one goes. Yeah, I think schools are going to be really, really happy that they can even have the debate about which way to go. So it's good news. Yep. Good news for schools. Good news for schools. Okay, so for our new menu items, our daily specials today, we have some other news and updates. Um, just, I don't know, last week maybe, Apple came out with this um, new thing called Clips. And what's kind of neat about Clips is that it allows you to do um, 
some different things with the images that you take on your iPhone or on your iPad. It allows you to um, annotate on top of it. Um, oh, I know the other thing that I think is super cool is the live titles option. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. So you get to um, put on like animated captions onto your videos or onto your images and things like that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm so excited to give this a try. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting app on here too. Um, I think they're making a bit of a social media push here because yeah. uh, the main sharing platforms they've got for are Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, lots of really fun features. I think it's maybe like a, I think of it maybe like an iMovie Lite, just a way to make a quick, easy to share video with yeah. some filters, quick editing, uh, stickers, and fun stuff like that. So Yeah, it kind of reminded um, me of Snapchat a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, so. It's got that Snapchat feel to it, yeah. I think it's a sector of the market Apple feel like they have to be a part of now. So there's yeah. some good creative possibilities there for schools, and uh, I heard it may be available from April sometime. So Ooh. let's keep an eye on that and see uh -huh. what happens. Okay, so continuing with uh, the Apple theme to the podcast, uh, we have also got uh, news that Apple have acquired an app called Workflow. And Workflow is an automation app for iOS. It's one that um, Clay Riesler uh, actually talked about and showed us at our iPad U conference last summer. And I know Josh Allen, who was on the podcast recently, is also a fan of Workflow. It lets you set up these uh, automated scripts for doing tasks that would normally take multiple steps, but you could do it with just one tap. So um, Apple bought Workflow and uh, they made the app free in the App Store, which is good to know too. Yeah, I've never used this. So um, can you give me an example? How would I use it? I can give you one example because I haven't okay. dived too deep into this recently, okay. but um, I found a workflow where you can go through and delete all the screenshots from your camera oh, roll, yes. right. which is just a nice thing to have to automate because it doesn't delete all your photos. It just deletes the screenshots because Apple, your iPad knows what's a screenshot and what's a photo. Right. And uh, for people like me who create like tutorials and screencasts and things, we take a lot of screenshots. So... Um, just a nice way just to wipe out all the screenshots when you don't need them anymore. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you can have it on your phone and do other things like, I don't know, I think Clay said he has it automatically send the text to his wife when he is mm -hmm. half an hour out from being home or something. And uh -huh. it just automates some of those uh, things. Yeah, so it's kind of like, I always call it IFT. I don't really know if that's, yes. or do, are you supposed to call yes. it IFTTT? So it's kind of like that, right? Like yeah. it's in, okay, if this happens, then this should happen. Hmm. All right, so next um, news and update, and this one's a big one, I think, and that's um, Apple Classroom 2.0 adds um, some new features, and I just happened to take a look at this today because you had um, sent it to me, and I was really impressed with this. So the nice thing about Apple Classroom 2.0 is that if you have unmanaged devices, so if you're not using Meraki or something like that, that it allows you to manage the devices um, within your classroom by giving a setup code um, for your students to type in, and then they can, um, like, you can push out uh, websites to them. You can, I love the airdrop feature, so you can airdrop something to all of your devices at one time. Um, so it just allows you to kind of get everybody on the same page, which I thought would be super useful, like in an elementary classroom. I was like, oh my gosh, this would have saved me so much time. So I thought it was really neat. What'd you think of it? Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, it's one of those things that when it first came out, we were like, oh, that's kind of neat, but you do need to have those managed supervised devices before. And now Apple has said, anybody, if you've got a cart of iPads, you can work with Apple Classroom. You can view what's on the student device. You can lock them in an app. You can mute all the student devices. You mm -hmm. can do all kinds of stuff like that, which is uh, really fun and interesting to do. And one of the things I found out was that um, only the teacher needs the Apple Classroom app. Because mm -hmm. on the student side, I, I tried this just before the podcast, actually, you open up the classroom app on the teacher app and you kind of like broadcast your class out to the other iPads. Oh. The students go into the settings of their iPad right. and there's a, an option just appears called classroom. And then mm -hmm. they tap on that and they join your class and and that's it. They're part of the so classroom. So then would it, would it show up like on my iPhone too? 
like under my settings if you were broadcasting a class? I looked on my iPhone. I didn't see it. I don't know if huh, this. Yeah. I think this might be iPad specific. I see. Kind of a fun thing to play with. Yep. Yeah. I'm looking forward yeah. to finding a school that is going to be able to uh, let me experiment on them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It'd be good for PD that you could just like have all the teachers yeah. there and, and working on that. It does require um, iOS 10.3 though. So if your device yeah. is an iPad 2, which cannot be updated to iOS 10, you cannot use Classroom. Um, but uh, if you are able to update to iOS 10.3, you sh should be able to try Classroom. And we will put links to how to do that in the show notes. Yeah, so if you um, use this in your classroom, let us know too. Let us know what you think of it. Yeah, we'd Send love to see. Send us a tweet or something. Yeah, for sure. All right, so this was kind of new too, that um, Google now lets you add students without um, a G Suite education account to your Google Classroom. So what used to happen is that if you wanted students from, or, you know, adults or whatever, added to your class outside of your domain, their domain had to be whitelisted, which required extra steps. Where now what you can do is add in those students into your classroom without that extra step. Yeah, so I guess in theory that means you don't have to be a Google Apps for Education school in order to use Google Classroom now. Is that right, too? Am yeah, I reading that I, the right I mean, way? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So if your school hasn't adopted it, but your students are all using it. Students all have Gmail accounts. They could yes. all be part yeah, of your, right. your classroom anyway. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, the other thing I was thinking about, too, is that you could have um, students enroll in a class where their you know teacher isn't you might have like a couple districts that are involved in one course or something like that. And it kind of takes that whitelisting out too, which is kind of nice. So kind of opens up the walls of the classroom a little bit easier for teachers. Okay, so the last piece of news and update on our list here is that Code.org have been developing some new free computer science courses for middle and high school classes. But uh, we are in the unique position today to have a special guest on the podcast who is able to talk a little bit more about that, Mindy. So maybe we should just get straight to that and uh, find out some more. You betcha. All right, so up next is our main course served piping hot. We are talking today with Samantha Dalby and talking about coding in Nubo Co. And Samantha is going to be talking with us about um, some coding opportunities she has for teachers and for students and just um, some of the great things that they're doing at Nubo Co. So did I miss anything, Samantha? No, you got it all, Mindy. All right. So can you tell us a little bit more um, and more detail than what I gave about what you do at NuboCo and um, a little bit about your relationship with Code.org? Absolutely. So I am the K-12 Education Coordinator at NuboCo, and NuboCo is a nonprofit in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And we have a lot of initiatives going on, and the one I'm associated with is our K-12 STEAM initiative. And my main, I guess, work that I do is acting as the program manager for our partnership with Code.org. And Code.org, um, I'm sure most people are familiar with, but they want to get computer science to all students in all schools. And in order to reach everyone, um, they have created a regional partnership program, and we were chosen as the regional partner for all of Iowa, so our areas, the entire state of Iowa. And what I do is work with schools and their teachers to get teachers trained to be able to bring high-quality computer science into their schools. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with their CS Fundamentals curriculum, which is pretty easy. It's like a eight-hour um, Saturday, usually, uh, training for teachers in elementary school, K through five. And um, now they have a middle school option, which is called CS Discoveries. It's in pilot right now, and it's going to be in its first training round this year. And then CS Principles is the high school option. And so we're trying to help um, schools get that middle school and high school option in. Those uh, training opportunities are a little bit more intense than the elementary level, where teachers go to a five-day uh, workshop in the summer and get their initial training on the tools and the first couple of units for the their curriculum. 
And then throughout the school year, there will be four different workshops that will most likely be on a weekend. We still have that to figure out based on where our teachers are located. But we're looking at Saturdays right now, be about six hours on four different Saturdays to help them with the last couple of units as they go through and just kind of create that support network so that teachers don't get trained and then they're out there in the wild by themselves um, trying to figure things out. So, Samantha, one of the one of the things that we come up against, and I'll just uh, throw this out there, is that you know we we want to have more coding done in the classroom, and I think teachers are wanting to learn to to do more of that. But how how much experience do teachers need in order to teach this type of curriculum? You know, if you've never done any coding before, then you know is this something that's still approachable, or is there some kind of background that people can do first before? jumping in with the CS discoveries or CS principles? Yeah, that's a great question. We get that all the time. And you need zero experience. The oh, qualities good. that we look for, yes, perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the qualities that we look for um, in the application process right now are for teachers that are passionate and that are willing to learn something new and are comfortable with an inquiry-based approach. Um, so we encourage teachers to not have to know everything um, because especially with computer science, things are changing so quickly that it's it's hard to to know everything that's out there. And the curriculum is for for all of code.org stuff is the lessons are just laid out for them. They could go by it verbatim without any experience. Um, and it tells you the objectives and the purpose for the lessons. It has check boxes for things that you need to prepare beforehand. There are uh, videos for the teachers so that they can get an idea of what they're going to be teaching. Um, that in that lesson, there are vocabulary words with definitions so that the teacher knows exactly what they're talking about. And then they also provide a lot of videos for the students on their end, um, interactive tools, and then all of the, the activities. And it'll tell you approximately how much time each activity takes and what you should be doing during those parts of the activities. So it's really laid out. The teachers don't have to prepare anything, but it's also flexible where some teachers I know that found the curriculum by themselves and started using it and now want to be trained in it, um, they kind of mix it in with what they're already doing. One teacher in particular that um, has applied to be a facilitator for us, he is using the, the high school curriculum CS principles this year, and he said he did all of unit one um, just to give his students a base. And then he's kind of working in the rest of the units into other things that he's pulling together based on their interests and kind of doing more of a, a project-based approach. So it's really flexible on um, what you can control, what you do. It's um, kind of mix and match if you want, or you can go through it start to finish. So I think you had mentioned, so he had already accessed some of the materials before the training. So our teachers, even if they don't go through the training or maybe they can't get away to go through the training, they can still use the materials as well? Yep. Everything on code.org is absolutely free, free forever. It's released with Creative Commons licensing. So teachers can go and find it. Um, they can use it. They can modify it. They can share it. Um, anything that's out there for, for anyone to use. Awesome. So where would they find um, those learning materials for CS Discoveries and CS Principles? Sure. So if they go to the code.org website, which is code.org. Right. And they do slash educate. Okay. And then slash either CSD for middle school or CSP for high school. Awesome. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes so that um, everyone can kind of just link to it. Great. That's awesome. Yep. Great. Okay. And also on those sites, both of them, they have the links to the applications. So if teachers are interested in applying for the training program, mm -hmm. they can find that right at the top of both of those pages. It's a pretty short um, survey. It's about 15 minutes. Most okay. of it is just, are you actually going to be teaching this class next year? Um, there's a, a information about your principal so that it and it is short survey like two to five minute one gets sent to the principal that uh -huh. says yes I am on board with this teacher teaching this curriculum yes it's on our master schedule right. um, and then there are some free form questions like why do you think computer science is important for students and how are you going to encourage students to take this course 
I was just thinking about those last two questions that you had on your form there about uh, why do you think computer science is important and how are you going to get kids interested in it? And that's the question <laughs> we were going to ask you. So. Send it right back what to would, me. <laughs> what would your answers be for that? <laughs> yeah, so so personally, um, I think computer science is important because oftentimes we think about the coding and the you know the programming, the algorithms aspect, but it's really um, a broader spectrum of options where it, t- it teaches critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills, communication skills, working in groups. Um, You have the global impact um, aspect of it where they can understand how they can do something here and it affects things on a global scale. Um, And what I like to do to encourage students to kind of follow that path is see what they're already passionate about. I mean, students go through different phases and they might, you know, younger kids may be interested in dinosaurs or um, maybe someone's interested in cooking and find out what those are and then find ways to hook technology in because there's so many options out there that there's, it's almost impossible to not find a way to connect it. So if you have someone that's really interested in cooking, maybe encourage them to design an app to keep track of recipes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you can find varying degrees of difficulty on how you do that, where something's more the drag and drop um, app development uh, on up to actually you know, typing, programming. Um, if someone's interested in fashion or art, maybe look into doing wearables um, or like programmable LEDs for clothing where they're working with that. Um, if they're interested in music, uh, one of our friends does live music performances where he actually edits code to produce the music. Hmm. And I think that's a really unique aspect of things huh. that most yeah. people don't think of. And sure. and. You know, kids like listening to music. They like creating it. And that's kind of a fun way to play around with it. Um, and if they're more like the drawing artistic side, I mean, everyone loves Pixar, right? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, right. That's right. like the, the ultimate job yeah. of animation and programming together. So just finding what they're interested in and then and searching for that and then um, kind of guiding them along those paths. And this sounds to me... and. We had talked off air a little bit about some of the workshops and things that you offer on Saturdays for families and for kids. That sounds a lot like what you're doing. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about um, some of those things that you run on Saturdays? Sure. So Saturdays, we on the first and third Saturday of every month from 1 to 3 p.m., we offer Coder Dojos. And Coder Dojo is a, a global movement um, organization, but each chapter can kind of do it their own way or add their own flair. The way we run ours is geared towards elementary school students, so K through five or six, depending on their interest. And that's not like a hard and fast rule. It's just kind of where we found the interest lies for that format. And we have several different stations set up, usually like three to five different stations. And they rotate based on the volunteers that are helping out that weekend and what they want to do. We almost always have a, an hour of code station for people that are coming in brand new, have never done anything before. And so we have them usually start at hour of code with the nice tutorials that are there. Um, there usually is a Lego robotics station. We do some more advanced programming, um, whether using like code combat or encouraging them to go through code academy, um, or, um, we will do, we, we usually do like a scratch station too. And sometimes those volunteers that do that will do something specific with scratch, like showing them how to do music or doing animation. Sometimes it's just open whatever they want to do. Um, sometimes we throw in electronics. I like doing squishy circuits where we have conductive Play-Doh and light up LEDs, um, or we get out our snap circuits. Little bits are a huge hit every time mm-hmm. we get those out. Yeah, yeah. And then we know that families bring, you know, they have multiple age groups of kids. And so they may have younger siblings that aren't quite old enough to do some of those. And so we always have an open imagination station, which is just, you know, regular Legos or magnetic building things or um, creativity. And sometimes you'll see kids that are are engaged in the other stations just need a little break and downtime to be creative and they'll kind of wander over there. So it really rotates. It's a little bit different every time, and it's always engaging for the kids. They can wander through the different stations, and sometimes they'll stay there the whole time. Sometimes they'll try all of them out. So it's really um, pretty open. And then we this year we added for the older kids, so middle and high school students, something called Dojo Pros. And that's offered the same days at the same time so that a family with multiple kids can come with all of their kids. Um, and those are more in depth on a specific topic. And we have 
Um, they have to register beforehand, and they're $25 per session, so a little bit of fee, but usually that's because there are materials involved and the instructor is actually creating a lesson. And things that we've done so far this year include three different levels of virtual reality, um, different levels of 3D printing, web development, um, and some just basic programming skills. So we're trying to get some more options out there for kids that can kind of help them dive in deeper and then um, encouraging them to explore outside of just that session. So as a father of a, of a nine-year-old daughter here, um, what kind of percentage of uh, girls do you see coming to these type of events? I mean, do you get much interest from, from, from both boys and girls? And, and if not, you know, how, how do you stand with the whole, you know, the girls who code movement and, and encouraging more girls into, into programming? Yes. And as a mother of two girls, it's very tough of mine, especially someone who went through the industry. Yeah, um, I bet. Yeah. So we, we see a mix of both boys and girls. Um, I mean, families bring all of their kids. So if they've got boys and girls, they're both interactive. We've seen Girl Scout troops come together, which is really cool because they get to, um, you know, run around together and be like, oh, look what I see. Come over here and create this with me. And so it's more collaborative. Um, and so we see, yeah, both genders, especially at the elementary school level, um, interesting things, and I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but they found that about between 9 and 13 years old is when all kids start to self-identify with where they think they can be and where they can't be. And so reaching them younger, I mean, we get a lot of questions about, well, what, yeah, we can provide this in high school. Why should we do it younger? Well, if, mm -hmm. if kids aren't exposed to it at a younger age, then they just start stereotyping themselves and saying, oh, well, that's not for me. And that's both gender and race. Um, so if we catch them younger and they're exposed to it and they say, oh, I can do this, it's really fun and exciting, then that gives them that option. It keeps it you know, on the plate as something that they're thinking about. Um, so ways in particular about girls and trying to show um, you know, the interest and keep them interested in it, some successful things that I've seen is showing them how computer science can help the world. Um, a lot of girls, when they start thinking about what they want to do, kind of goes in more that empathic route, not yeah. saying that boys don't, um, but a lot of times girls say, well, they want to go into the medical field because they want to help people or they want to, you know, go into marketing because they want to help something. And so showing how they can help through doing technology is one way that um, we can do that. And, and also showing that it's beyond just typing at a computer because some people really like that aspect. They like the idea of sitting at a computer and playing on the computer all day. But some people are like, I don't want to be stuck you know, at a desk. I want to be doing things. And so that's where we'll start talking about human-computer interaction, where you're designing things, you're, you're building things you know, at your computer, but with people in mind and how they're going to use it. And so you actually go out and you meet with people, you talk with your target audience about barriers or hurdles or um, issues that they're having. And so you're thinking about that specific area and how to help it. Um, we can talk about medical robots, a huge industry that's growing. And so that kind of brings a medical aspect in. And you can merge the medical and technology in there. Um, and then using technology to save animals, um, the robotics themes that they came up with this year um, for, f I think it's first Lego League, the middle school age one, is actually on helping animals. And so I found that was really interesting that they're kind of actually doing that within their system picking a topic and um, using it to help the world. So um, you kind of talked a little bit about Little Bits and Snap Circuits. And what other things are you really excited about right now? Or what are some things that we should be looking at with coding? Um, you know, we have like the Dash and Dot. We talk about those things a lot. But are there some other things as well that you were like, oh, this is really cool. You know, teachers should know about this. Yeah, and mine's going to skew a little bit on the younger age because we have a two- and a five-year-old girl right sure. now. And so that's kind of where I'm like, oh, this stuff's awesome right now. Yeah. Um, but my favorite, so I have to give a shout-out to Scratch, the old standby. That's my like sure. go-to forever. But new things, um, we have a Cubetto that we got at home. It was a Kickstarter last year, and they started delivering them in the fall. And it's a little wooden robot um, that talks via Bluetooth to this wooden board. And the board um, has slots in it for their instruction path. And then in order to, 
tell Cubetto what to do, it you put in shapes, kind of like puzzle pieces almost. So it's similar to like um, other ones that you see now, but this is more sure. like younger kids. And mm-hmm. then each of the the pieces have a color and then um, direction. So it's either forward, left, or right. And then there's a function one too. And so the thing I really like about it is that my two-year-old, who is just you know working on gross motor skills and kind of like colors and things like that, I can say, okay, put a red one in, and she has to find the red one, and she has to figure out how to fit it in, you know, find a green one, that kind of thing. And my five-year-old can follow the storyline that comes with it, which is pretty engaging in itself, where it says, okay, Cubetto's going on a trip out to outer space, and he needs to get from the Earth to the moon, so figure out how to do that. And so she can think more broadly and say, okay, I have to make... Um, two forwards and a right and then go forward again and then beyond that it gets more challenging with the function line or with the uh, subroutine line where they actually can do repeats so you only unless you buy more pieces it's like four pieces of each type Mm -hmm. and you can't do everything that way so you can use the subroutine to repeat and so Mm -hmm. some of the paths will actually say um, okay get from here to there and they'll have to repeat something, so they actually have to are forced to use that that subroutine, and that's like a big leap for young kids yeah, to make. Right? <laughs> yes. So, right. So that's where like my five year old, she can do it, but that's kind of where I have to guide her and say, "Oh, okay. Well, how can you do a repeat if you don't have enough?" Mm-hmm. And then she's like, "Oh yeah, I can do this thing." It also um, shows them the effects of a an infinite loop. So that's always fun when they're like, it's not stopping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, they can have those those mistakes in there. Um, so it's something that's really engaging and, and we play with it a lot at our home. I'm looking at that one online right now and it's it looks like um, it, it's a real combination of like the, the physical hands-on motor type skills as well as, you know, the programming as well. I mean, almost comparable in some ways to things like the Osmo where it's like this combination of the technology and the, the hands-on play part to it. And it comes with like, there's like maps that go along with it and mm-hmm. storybooks as well to like, you know, send them around the room like you would with a Habiba or something like that. So yeah, yeah that and- looks like fun. It's. I think the base kit is like $250, and that comes with the robot, the board, um, four of each of the four um, instructions, and then the initial storybook, which is just like Cubetto goes to school. And then they have an, like, an accessory pack, which is four more mats and stories that you can buy in, in addition to that. I don't remember how much that one is. But um, we with the Kickstarter, we were able to get both of those combined and – I've actually taken um, taken the space one to my daughter's class when they were doing a space unit and did it with groups of three kids. And it was really engaging. And they have, she goes to a, a Montessori school, and but they have um, an age range from three to, to five-year-olds. And so it was interesting working with that different age group um, and, and seeing which of them did what in it. And it was kind of interesting for me to see and, and figure out how to work with them um, on the different aspects of it, you know, at their level. Yeah, that's a great one. I like this one a lot. It's good to have that option for, you know, the the younger kids because I think a lot of the stuff that we traditionally look at for these programmable toys are usually just a little bit older for some of those three- to five-year-olds, but, you know, this is uh, right in their wheelhouse, I think. Yeah. Um, another thing that I like that's not directly tech, it's offline, is Hello Ruby. Have you guys heard of Hello Ruby? No. You uh-uh. went to me. No? Yeah. So that was, I'm a, I'm a big Kickstarter fan, apparently. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that you was like also your Kickstarters. A, yeah. Um, it was also a Kickstarter, and it's a book, um, but there's a website that has a lot of more resources on there, too. Um, and, and this lady created a storybook about a girl named Ruby. And the story isn't even about computers, but it's about the problem solving and thinking about clues and how to put things together and stuff. And then the whole back of the book are all of these activities to do with kids that are offline that are about like computational thinking. And so some of them are pictures of Ruby wearing different clothes. And then it has on Mondays, you know, Ruby will only wear clothes with stripes. So which one does she wear? And so it kind of like has different activities like that all the way up to let's cut out, um, you know, cut out things on paper and we're going to 
play, I think that one of them is like, if you roll a die, then, um, then you put like, if it's a one, you're going to put an eye on the monster. Um, if you roll a three, then you're going to put legs on it and things like that, where it's just like interactive stuff that walks them through that same computational thinking before they get to computers. But, and so it engages them in that process. So I'm a big fan of that. And my daughters love reading the story over and over and over. And it has cute, cute references in there too, like the little Android guys are in there um, yeah. and penguins for Linux and things like that. So it's kind of has mm, little throwbacks there. Hmm. So uh, a lot of times we have, and I think you've touched on this a little bit, but we have teachers that kind of ask us, well, you know, where do I fit coding in or um, how, how do I integrate that in the curriculum I'm already doing? What I mean, do you have any advice for them or any ideas? Um, and like I said, I know you've touched on this a little bit, but just any other things that you can think of that might be helpful to some of our teachers out there really trying to get going with coding and trying to find ways to fit it in? Yeah, sure. So sometimes, we, especially when I'm talking with schools, they're like, well, we have some teachers that are doing it in their class already or trying to, or we can't fit in a full coding class yet because it's you know scheduling us difficult. Um, so how can we get it to the students still? Um, some of the easiest ones to fit in into are science classes um, because you're doing experiments and you have data and you can do data analysis and just show students different ways to visualize their results and then show it, you know, with the whole classroom results. And that's kind of an interactive way of getting their information together. It's um, kind of does a nice wrap up to you know, the experiment that you're doing, um, understanding what does it mean is a big thing. Um, I know that I missed out on that sometimes in school when I was there. Like, okay, we did the experiment. That was fun. Let's move on. But what does it mean in <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the bigger scheme of things? Yep. Um, as far as math and even art, so this is a great way to pull them together. I like fractals um, because fractals are pretty. And everyone knows mm. about fractals now from Frozen. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, one of the things that I do now with my five-year-old who's not doing fractals with math, not necessarily, <laughs> but she likes looking at them. And, and if you go on Scratch and you search for fractals, there are tons and tons of projects already out there. And mm -hmm. you can manipulate um, different values to see how that changes the fractal. Um, and so that's a great way to start that you don't have to create something. Or you can go, if you just search for um, fractals in programming, you find a lot of different options. So integrating that um, into either math or art or getting those classes together to do something um, would be a fun thing to do. And then back to music. Um, so there's a website that I found recently called mathsciencemusic.org. And I found out that it, it started up about a year ago, I think. But they have free lessons on there um, that they're collecting. Um, and it's, it involves math, science, and music. And it's really integrated um, different ideas, some fun things to do. Um, I just started digging through it, and there's a lot of options that are out there, and they keep adding to it. So that would be a great resource to mm -hmm. add things in. And some of them are programming, and some of them aren't. Um, but, yeah, through that, they can learn all the, those wonderful problem-solving, critical thinking, 21st century skills um, that kind of make it more personalized. I think that's the key and the fun thing about computer science is that you can teach the same thing, but then the students, in order to learn it, learn it in a personalized way. And so that is more meaningful to them instead of just, you know, sitting there and like, oh, when am I ever going to use this? Right. Um, they get to create something that's, you know, fun for them. All right. Just for fun, um, I'm going to put you on the spot here and say <laughs> I have the power to put you in charge of education for the whole state of Iowa or beyond for a year. <laughs> Do you think that uh, all kids should learn some kind of coding? Do you think all kids should just have some exposure to coding? Or do you think that coding's probably for some kids but not for others? Where do you stand on that? I think that computer science is for everyone, and it depends on the level of computer science you want to go, how deep. I think everyone should understand the basic concepts because more and more we're, we have technology everywhere. And even if you don't go to become a computer scientist, you're going to be working with people that are creating and developing using computer science. And if you don't understand that, then you're lacking a huge skill. So mm -hmm. in schools in particular, I think we need to expose students to computer science 
and get those benefits, like I've been talking about, I'm like a broken record, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> the critical thinking skills that you're going to use no matter what you do. Problem solving, you're going to use no matter what you do. Working in groups, you're going to use that everywhere. So those things, even if they don't go into computer science, they're going to benefit from that. And then as they get into the older grades, then make it optional. So, you know, don't make it a required, you have to take computer science, but know that it's out there, give them that exposure and then let them choose what path they want to take. Yeah, I think we I think we take a lot for granted in terms of the the products and apps and services that we use that we don't often think like so how how does that work and how how does that how does that come to be and you know I'll, I'll still meet people here at Grant Wood that are like hey so I'm looking for something that does this and I want it to do this and this and this but I can't find anything out there and I think the more as we move forward in this age of technology it's going to be you know, the inventors, the people who are creating new things are going to be creating them with computers because it's going to be the easiest way to solve a given problem. So, yeah, and it's like you said, I think exposing them to some kind of technology, at least have some understanding of how this works. And then if they are wanting to go on and solve some of these problems that we have in society today, then that can be a, a great way to do it. Yeah, we definitely want to take them beyond just the consumers to become creators so that they have the option of developing something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, perfect. Well, Samantha Dalby, it has been a pleasure to have you. Girl, you know your stuff. Yeah, she <laughs> Love does. That. Yeah, it's just been really great. I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I Love it. You guys are so much fun. We'll have to have you back sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to come back. <laughs> All right, so now for my favorite part of the show, it's Tech Nuggets. You go first. You want me to go first? Yeah, why don't you? All right, well, I'm just back from the McCall Conference, which was in Detroit, and uh, I went to see Leslie Fisher, who was presenting numerous times, but <laughs> one of the sessions I went to, um, I think it was the Web 2.0, you may not know, is uh, had a whole bunch of different tools in there, and one of them is a Google spreadsheet tool, Mindy. So you might what? be surprised by what? that. Wait, what? What? Yeah, Back um, it up. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, based on Google spreadsheets, which I know oh. is going to be a little bit of a surprise, but uh, this makes spreadsheets a little bit more approachable, even uh, for me. Oh, tell me. Yeah, tell me. What? I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Flippity.net. Uh, F-L-I-P-P-I-T-Y dot net. And okay. it lets you turn a Google spreadsheet into a set of online flashcards or other cool stuff. So mm. um, they have a flashcard maker. They have a flippity quiz show, which is a bit like Jeopardy. Oh, uh, fun. You choose the points and you can write questions. Uh, they have a tournament bracket for... Um, Tournament brackets is is March, is March Madness over yet? I don't know. Oh, I'm not keeping track. Love. No. Are people still, still playing March. basketball? Yes. Okay. Does it really go on for the whole of March? Is that how this um, works? Um. Well, it won't go for the well. Uh. Yeah. It will go for the whole of March. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't start at the beginning of March. It starts in the middle of March. I really don't care. I'm just going to move on. I know. Um, okay. There's a crossword puzzle. Um, let's put basketball up there with uh, Google Spreadsheets. There's a crossword puzzle. There's a flippity bingo, flippity hangman, flippity spelling words, a random name picker, uh, a mix and match grid, all kinds hmm. of different things on here. And it also appears as a flippity add-on for Google Sheets. Oh. So instead of going to the website, which you can do at flippity.net, you can just have it as an add-on. And as you activate the add-on, you just choose the template you want and it makes something amazing based out of a Google spreadsheet. Good one. Thanks. All right. So um, I have something new called iBrainstorm. And I don't think it's new. It's new to me. And I actually, um, Dana Phillips uh, talked to me about this, and she was talking about how you, there's this whiteboard that allows that you can share your notes to someone like in your area who's also using the app. So okay. um, Wiley and I um, don't say okay because I'm going to mention that you and I played with it. We did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so uh, Wiley and I gave this a shot today because I wanted to see how it worked. And um, so we both had the iBrainstorm app 
um, on our iPads, and we weren't able to see what the other one had written on their whiteboard, but you also have the option to put post-it notes on your whiteboard, and you can share the post-it notes just kind of like by pushing them to the little um, share area on your screen. And so that was kind of neat because we kind of passed notes back and forth, and I could see how... Um, it's kind of nice, actually, I think, to have that whiteboard just to yourself so you don't have someone else like writing on your stuff, but you could still pass notes back and forth um, to share your ideas. So you still have your own space, but you also have like this shared area. I kind of liked it. I thought it was neat. Certainly something different. There's not many yeah. apps around there that do that kind of no. thing. Yeah. The nice thing is, is um, their creations on the whiteboard portion of iBrainstorm can be dropped into other things like Seesaw, into Google Classroom, into your drive. So you can save all those things too, which I liked as well. Nice one. Good pick. Yeah. Um, I have one called Sutori. Have you heard of that, Mindy? No, I haven't. This is new to me. Well, it is not new to almost half a million teachers and students because 462,173 teachers and students are using Sutori, huh. uh, which is S-U-T-O-R-I dot com. Yeah. It's a digital storytelling type of tool. It's web-based. Um, it's collaborative, kind of like a Google Doc. You're going to have multiple okay. people on it at the same time. It lets you add images, videos, audio, and quiz questions, and it presents it all in a kind of vertical timeline type of view. Yeah. Um, students right. can interact and add comments, and they can reply to each other's comments. Teachers can create templates for the students to modify and resubmit, and you can set up a class for your students with Google Classroom. Hmm. So it's called Sutori. Interesting. I like that it's collaborative, too. I do, too. Yes. And I like that it is free. It's free? Well, there's a free plan and there's an unlimited plan. The free plan limits you to two groups, which okay. I would liken to like, like two a classes. classes. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're an elementary teacher, it's probably a no-brainer. You could just get in and start using it because you've only got the sure. one class. Yeah. Um, but uh, middle high school teachers, it's $99 a year if you would like mm. to create unlimited numbers of groups. All right. So my last tech nugget is um, I'm going to use like the vintage word of technology and um, talk a little bit about this new thing that kind of like swept the nation, which is Lego tape. And it's actually not they can't call it Lego tape, but it's called Numuno Loops. Um, and it is uh, reusable tape that is compatible with the use of Legos and Mega Blocks and other kind of like inter interlocking little bricks, okay? So you can take this tape and like bend it and you can cut it, you can put it up the wall, you can create all these different things and your Legos will stick to it. I'm so excited about this. And you can expect it to come out sometime, hopefully in July. Um, they were looking for donors. I think they were looking for like $40,000 or something like that. And they got over a million dollars in, um, not donors. What's the word I want to look for? Um, backers on Kickstarter. Was it kick, was it a Kickstarter? I don't know if it was on Kickstarter or not, but, um, they were, so they were looking for about $40,000, I think in investor and in investments and ended up getting over a million dollars. Wow. So, um, there ago. And, um, from what I read was just that, um, because they had so much money invested in them that they're actually really concentrating on the quality of the product before it comes out in July. So I'm super excited and I'm going to buy some and I will have this update later and let you know how it goes. Well, I'm looking at a link for it uh, that you put in the show notes here, yeah. and uh, they raised, uh, so far, there's 14 days left as I look at this, they have raised yeah. $1.47 million. That's crazy. People are really excited about this. Like, I it was know. all over the place. It is everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. And it will it's be everywhere when you buy it. It will be stuck to your walls, oh, yeah. it will be stuck to your ceiling, and stuck to oh, your I doors. Know. Yeah, my husband and I are like, oh, how reusable do you really think it's going to be? Like, if we put it on the wall, is it going to take the paint off the wall? What's going to happen? So, next part of the show, Jonathan's Catch of the Day, where he shares two new podcast picks um, of podcasts that he would like to recommend to our listeners. So, what do you got? 
I have got two podcasts for you today, and the first is my educational pick. It's called the EdTech Situation Room with a friend of the show, Wesley Fryer and Jason Neifer, and they have a podcast about um, technology and how it impacts the classroom and the teachers. So basically, they take technology stories from the week and they put an education spin on it and uh, talk about why these are relevant things that teachers need to know about and be aware of and the implications that they could have for uh, for teachers. So it's a really interesting show. It's uh, two very knowledgeable people. They talk about all kinds of uh, great things and important things like uh, privacy. There's all kinds of things mm. going around about uh, people getting hacked and uh, things getting released and WikiLeaks and all the rest. And, you know, what are the implications on that for teachers and student data and all that kind of stuff? So if you are looking for... Um, Something along those lines, you're interested in technology and you're interested in education as well. These guys have a good intersection of both of those. So EdTech Situation Room, take a listen to that one. And my second pick is called Clockwise from Relay FM, And this is a good one if you don't necessarily have all that long to listen to a podcast because it is only 30 minutes long. They have four people. They have four technology topics and they do it in a kind of a round table format where uh, the host will start with um, a topic that uh, is technology related and maybe it's uh, Apple released a new iPad. What do you think of that? And then they go around the table and everybody says something about that particular topic. And then the next person uh, brings their topic to the table, introduces it and passes that around. And they do that four times until everybody has uh, had their say. That's kind of fun. It is a fun one. And it's, yeah. it's hosted by Jason Snell and Dan Moran. Those are the two regular hosts and they have two guest hosts on each week. So hmm. um, great uh, podcast if you are interested. I think it's a very unique format and uh, very listenable too. It covers all kinds of different topics. All right. So that's a good one. Clockwise from Relay FM, huh? Hmm. Yes. All right. Thanks for sharing. Well, I'm happy to share, Mindy. You know me. Yeah, I surely do. I think that brings us to the end of the podcast today. I hope you uh, enjoyed listening to it. If you did, please uh, share it with some others on social media or get your colleagues listening to podcasts. There's a lot of great podcasts out there uh, right now. I am at Team Kearney on Twitter and Jonathan is at Jonathan Wiley. Our team account is at DLGWAEA and you can use hashtag EdTechTO to take the show or send us an email to podcast at GWAEA.org. So that's all we have for this episode. Until next time. This has been the EdTech Takeout. We hope it hit the spot. For more information on today's episode, please visit dlgwaea.org slash podcast. 